Let us be the remedy. And there's something inside of you, right? And there's something inside of me that we love to be a part of solutions. We like to fix things. When there are problems in front of us and where there are challenges in front of us, we like to be a part of, of fixing those problems and, and fixing those challenges. In fact, in our own individual lives, a lot of what we do on any given day is determined by which problems lie ahead of us. Our schedule is laid out on a day on, and, and we do our actions around the problems and the challenges that are in front of us that we need to fix and that, and that we need to make Right, we change our schedule because there's a, a problem. The kids need to be picked up or, or we're sick. We need to go to the doctor. Uh, there's a challenge at work. And so we call a meeting. And a lot of what we're doing throughout any given day is determined by the challenges and the problems that, that are in front of us. And in many ways, those problems, big or small, they give us a purpose. They give us something to do. They determine what it is we're going to do and why we're going to do it. In fact, for Lori and I, a couple years ago, we bought our first home, and it was an older house, and so we knew when we purchased it that it had a couple of problems that we were going to need to work on. Some of you live in older homes, you know what that is like. And so one of the things that we knew when we bought the house we were going to have to do something about uh, was the boiler that was sitting in our basement. Our house was built in 1942, and the boiler was installed that very same year, right there, you know, World War II times. And so that boiler was there, and it was converted from, from oil to gas at some point. And we knew at some point we were going to have to take care of it. I didn't really, I don't know much about these things. You know, the good Lord didn't bless me with those sorts of skills uh, or knowledge, but I knew that it was old because everyone who came in our basement uh, including the housing inspector and the city plumbing inspector and a couple of plumbers that we had had to work in our basement, looked at our boiler and said, wow, I have never seen one like that before. In fact, one of the plumbers, who is a good friend of ours, he came to do some work and he said, you know, I... I just need to bring one of my coworkers with me. He's seen everything. And he walked down into our basement. He took one look. He goes, I have no idea what this thing is. It's like, I've never seen this before. And so we knew we were going to have to do something. I mean, it not only was it old, it was completely inefficient. I, every time the boiler kicked on, it sounded like a, one of those propane uh, burners in a hot air balloon. And the, and the gas meter was spinning around like it was counting gallons of water coming out of the Hoover Dam. And our bills last winter were way more than what we wanted to pay. And in fact, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure every time our boiler kicked on, a family of polar bears fell through the ice. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's true. So it was inefficient. It was completely inefficient, and we need to do something about it. So they, you know, they did all the rebates and mass save stuff. So we got some plumbers out and went to get estimates. And a couple of plumbers, they walked into our basement, and they said, no, thank you. And they walked right out. Uh, but a couple gave us some estimates. And one guy sat me down, and, and we knew him through some other people. He was a great guy. And he said, listen, he's like, if you want to really buy a boiler that's going to last you for a long time. He said, you got to buy this boiler. It's engineered in Germany. I go over to Germany. I, I work with the, with the company. It's the best boiler that you can buy. And I thought in my head when he was talking, he was probably right because the Germans are great engineers, right? BMW and Mercedes, and maybe this is the BMW of boilers. But I forgot in that moment one important thing when he was talking to me, and that was that the Germans also created 
uh, the Hindenburg. And so when he was talking to me, and he was selling me on this boiler, I thought it sounded like a great plan. You know, the, the company, right, they have an office right here in Woburn. And so he puts the boiler in, and it looks fantastic. There's, I don't know, there's all sorts of things on my wall, computers and panels and everything. It looks great. And so uh, the next morning after he installed it, I woke up and the house was freezing. And I walked downstairs to the boiler, and it had a digital display on the front of the boiler, it does. And on the digital display that normally displays the temperature that the boiler is keeping the house, all it said across the whole display was fault. And I didn't really know what was going wrong, but I knew that that couldn't be good. So I called the plumber, and he came back out, and, and, and he, spent, uh, he spent some time on it, fixed it. The next morning, it said fault again. And for about a week, for about a week, my life, Lori's life, the plumber's life, the local rep of this company's life was completely consumed in fixing this problem because that's the way our schedule is, is arranged. We, when there's problems in front of us, we take our time, we take our energy, and we take our resources, and we work towards fixing that problem. Finally, after a week, they just gave me a new one. It's been working great for the last six weeks. But we schedule our lives, right, around the problems that need to be Solved. And we don't just do this individually, we do it nationally. We do it as a city. We're Boston strong because there was a problem that needed to be solved and everybody came together to try and do something about it. When there is an epidemic, a disease epidemic that, that strikes a lot of people, people come together. Everyone wants to be a part of the solution. And so they'll wear the ribbon and they'll walk around the track and they'll raise money and they'll give because when there's a problem, there's something inside of us, it's inside of you and it's inside of me that likes to fix it. We like to be a part of the solution. We like to feel like we're doing something to make that problem go away or to help everyone work towards a solution. In fact, we really believe that no matter what the problem is or the obstacle is or the thing that needs to be overcome, whatever challenge is in front of us, we believe as in, not just as individuals, but as a, as a community and as a society, that given enough time and enough resources and enough of the right people working on it, that we can solve anything. That whether the challenge has to do with health or global warming or whatever the challenge is that's in front of us, we believe that if we get enough people together and enough smart people working on it and we all pitch in and do our part, that there's not a thing that we can't fix and we can't solve. And there's something inside of us that likes that. We like to be problem solvers and do something good and work towards the solution and make things right. But you know, it strikes me that with all the problem solving that we do and with all the fixing that we do and with all the running around that we do trying to solve problems and the joy that we get, the purpose that we find in that, there is one problem that all of us in this room face that no matter what we do and no matter how much effort we put into it, no matter how many smart people we have working on it, no matter how much time we have to fix it, there is one problem that all of us face that none of us can solve. And it's not for a lack of trying because every society that has ever existed on this earth has in some way tried to solve this problem. But to this day, none of us, no one has been able to solve it. And the reality is, no matter how long we work on it, there's one problem that we will never 
fix. And the problem that we're talking about this morning, I think is best stated in the movie, What About Bob? And maybe you've seen that movie. It's one of my favorites. Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what happens, but it's 22 years old, so I feel like I've given you enough time. What About Bob is about a, pay, is about a man who, who goes to the psychiatrist. His name is Bob, and he's played by Bill Murray. And Bob has, has multiple, multiple issues. He's a worrier. He, he's worried about germs. He's worried about everything. And so he finds this psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, And Dr. Marvin is his savior. Finally, he's found a psychiatrist who can help him with all of his problems. The only problem is is that just after he finds a psychiatrist, Dr. Marvin goes on vacation for a month with his family to Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. And Bob can't let his doctor go off on vacation without him. And so he finds a way to fi- figure out where his doctor is and follow him up to Lake Winnipesaukee, where many of you, I'm sure, have been. And so Bob shows up, and the doctor, of course, is beside himself because he doesn't want his patient on vacation with him and his family. But the problem is his family loves Bob, right? And they invite him in for meals and they love having Bob around and the doctor hates having Bob around. And the family even invites Bob one night to stay over and have a slumber party at their vacation home. And in that moment, Bob is sharing a, a, a bedroom. He's in, he's in one side of the room and, and the, Dr. Marvin's son, Sigmund, is on the other side of the room and they're both staring up into the darkness. And in that moment, Sigmund states the problem that we're talking about very clearly and very succinctly. The one problem that none of us can solve. He says, Bob? Bob said, yeah. Sigmund said, are you afraid to die? And Bob said, yes. And Sigmund said, me too. But there's nothing we can do about it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And what does it matter if it's tomorrow or 100 years? It's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. And very clearly, he says, the one problem we can't solve, the one problem that all of us face in this room, that we're going to die one day, and there's really nothing that we can do about it. And compounded on top of that, in fact, that we're, we're going to die, most of us, most of us believe that after that happens, there's going to be some sort of evaluation on how we've lived. That it, that is going to take place, which we don't want to think about and we don't really want to consider and, and we don't really want to do anything with it. But, I mean, even beyond that problem, there's this problem that someone is going to stand there and is going to, to evaluate how we spent our years on this earth and is going to, to judge us and is going to, to weigh what we've done and is going to make some sort of determination as to whether or not we have lived an appropriate life or a right life or not. And so we have this problem. This problem that we can't solve, that death is coming and judgment is coming, and what are we to do about it? Now, the fact that all of us know that this is going to happen at some point in our lives, that, that at some point this is going to take place, uh, it, it doesn't stop us from trying things. 
as individuals and as a culture and as a society, trying things to try and make this problem go away, trying things to try and lessen the impact of this problem or, or, or lessen the blow that this problem presents to us. It doesn't stop us from, from trying to fix this and trying to solve this problem. In fact, when it comes to this problem of the fact that, that one time, at one point or another, our life is going to end and we're going to be judged on what we've done, there's really two things that, that a lot of us do to try and fix this problem. The first thing that we do is we are convinced and we try to control death as much as we possibly can. Since there's nothing much we can do from stopping it to happen, then what we do is we take our time and energy and our resources and we try to control it as much as we possibly can. In 1929, a man by the name of Jay Frederick was living in Chicago, Illinois. And after the stock market crash of 1929, uh, his father decided to leave his family. And so he left uh, Jay and his mom and his sister alone in Chicago in the Great Depression. And those years were hard, uh, Jay talks about in some of the interviews that I've read that those years were extremely difficult, as you can imagine. His mom went to a factory where they sewed brims onto hats, and she would come home with two cents a day for that work. And based upon the fact that life was so difficult, life was so tough, uh, Jay Frederick had this determination that he was going uh, to do something great no matter what the cost. And he worked his way through college at the University of Illinois. He worked his way through med school. And finally, he was offered a job at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, of ER fame, and he began to work in Cook County Hospital in the 40s. And in 1955, he was offered a position at the National Cancer Research Institute. And what they did with Dr. Frederick is when he came in, they gave him the one job that nobody else in the Cancer Research Center wanted. They took him up to the second floor, and he said they walked along the second floor, and the entire second floor of this building was only children diagnosed with leukemia. And in 1955, that was a death sentence. Dr. Frederick said he walked onto the wing and he knew that 90% of the children that were there would not be there in six weeks. And he knew that in a year, 100% of the children would not be there. And so Dr. Frederick, his determination and, and, and everything else that he had, had come out of being so poor and, and coming and having a problem in front of him, he decided we're going to solve this problem once and for all. And he did two things that no one else had ever done before. He began to think, you know, one of the problems with leukemia was the children were bleeding a lot and they were bleeding so much they couldn't receive the rest of their treatment. So he said, these children need fresh blood platelets over and over and over again. And when the hospital would not give him enough fresh blood, he began to take the patient's families and through the families, they would organize blood drives. And, and one of them was a minister, his whole congregation gave. And one of them was a businessman, his whole company gave. And so people were giving blood and Jay would take the blood and he would give the platelets to the children. And the second thing that he did that no one else was doing at the time was he began to administer large amounts of chemotherapy to the children, more than anyone else was giving. And in fact, the, the standard practice at the time was to, when the children started feeling better, actually remove treatment. And for Dr. Frederick, when the children started to begin to feel better, he said, this is our time to really attack the disease. And so he would make drug cocktails of chemotherapy and he would give them to them and the, and the children would get sicker and sicker. And the hospitals and his bosses saw what he was doing and they thought he was a madman making these kids so sick. And so they threatened his job and they told him they were going to take it away and they told him he better stop doing this, but he wouldn't stop doing it. And today, because of Dr. Frederick and because of the people that followed him and, 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 and the advances that were made on what he started, 
If our children get this strain of leukemia today, the cure rate is over 90%. Because he saw the problem and he went after it. And we say in our society, we say in our culture, that Dr. Frederick and those like him save lives. That they save lives. The EMTs at 9-11, the people that were around the Boston bombing, the, the firefighters that will come to your house if it's on fire. We look at those folks and we say, thank God for them because they save lives. And promoting life and saving life is very biblical. And I am for it. And I am thankful for people like Dr. Frederick and Jonas Salk and others who have done great things to solve problems that we're facing an entire society. But, The same token, do these people really save lives or do they in some way just delay the inevitable? And I know that feels like a dark way to look at it, but they solved a problem, but we act like they solved the problem. But no matter how long we control it and no matter how long we delay it, it's still going to happen. Last year, 250,000 people died from natural disasters. And in 2010, the CDC reports 2.5 million people in the U.S. died from disease. If you get CNN alerts on your phone, I got one this morning while we were in first service. A train derailed in the Bronx and killed two people. Death is uncontrollable. But there's something inside of us that feels like, no, 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 if we make enough advancements and we have enough of the right people, we have the Dr. Fredericks of the world and other people working on this problem, that's, that somehow we're going to come to the point where we can control it enough, that we can control it enough, where we can, we can it'll be better and it won't be as, as, as difficult and as big of a problem. We can, we can take care of this thing. And so we'll celebrate life and celebrate those who extend life and celebrate those who take care of it. And we can, we can somehow, we'll get together and we'll, we'll fix this thing, we'll make it right. But the problem is, is death itself is quite uncontrollable. And you say, well, yeah, but those are disasters. Those are diseases and those are disasters. But how many of us know close family members and friends that have died of very natural causes and how uncontrollable it felt those last few years. Right? We feel like it's probably going to be different for us. We're not going to forget things and we're going to be able to take care of ourselves and, and we're going to be able, it'll be better for us. But we know what that's like to watch someone lose Control, And no matter how much control we try to put around it, death itself is very uncontrollable. I was reading a piece in the, in the New York Times uh, earlier this week that was in the, <laughs> the New York Times uh, earlier this year. And the writer in New, the New York Times was lamenting the fact that they had to put his mother in a long-term care facility. And not only was he lamenting the fact that they had to put his mother there, he was lamenting the fact of all the folks that had been put there and kind of left there. And we know that that's true, right? That that happens. We've spent time in nursing homes or long-term care facilities. And the real sad part about those places is not that people have to go there for care and treatment that they can't find anywhere, but they're, they're left there. And people say, we can't deal with it. 
the, the uncontrolled nature of what's happening, the, the, the messiness of it, we can't see it. We can't, we can't deal with it. And this writer said, he said, segregating the old and sick enables a fantasy of youth and health as eternal, in which old age is nothing more than a bad lifestyle choice. So that when absolutely no fault of your own, your eyesight begins to blur and you can no longer eat without consequence, you somehow feel ripped off and lied to. Like there should be somebody to sue. Of course, we hospitalize the sick and the elderly for good reasons, better care and pain relief. But I think we also segregate the elderly from the rest of society because we're afraid, as if age might be contagious. Another illusion we can't seem to relinquish, partly because large and moneyed industries thrive on it, is that with enough money and information, we'll be able to control how we age and how we die. But one of the main aspects of aging is the loss of control. Even people with the money to arrange uh, to die in comfort die in agony and indignity, gabbling like infants, forgetting their children. Death is a lot like birth. Everyone's indifferent. Everyone's is different. But it's always messy. And there's not much you can do to prepare for it. And there's this reality that death is uncontrollable. Dr. Tony Evans down in Dallas, he's a preacher in Dallas, one of my favorites. I've said this before that he says, you know, we should, if we really want to figure out how old we are, we should stop counting our age by our birth date and count our age by our death date. Because if you're an 18-year-old and you're living to 95, you're very young. If you're an 18-year-old and you're living to 20, you're very old. And he's right in that concept, isn't he? But the reason that we don't count our age by our death date and the reason we use our birth date is because there's no possible way to know our death date. It's uncontrollable. It's uncontrollable and impossible to know. But yet there's something inside of us that wants to somehow how, how put, control it. And we think we're going to be the ones that can, that can finally control this whole thing. And it won't be as bad for us. And it, it will happen in our own time when we're ready for it to occur. And, and, and when with the right people around us. But the reality is it's uncontrollable. And the first thing that we try to do when we're presented with this problem of death and the judgment that follows is we think, well, I'll just control death and not let it have the impact on me that it has on other people. But we can't do that in the end. The second thing we do, knowing that we're going to die and there's someone going to judge us, is we just try to be good, don't we? For most of us, for most people in our world, the do-good system is how we think judgment is going to happen. It makes sense to us. Uh, it, it makes sense to us. We think that that's fair. That, that whoever is going to provide judgment once our life is over is going to, much like Santa Claus, get out the naughty list and the nice list and make sure that well, we've done more nice things than naughty things. And if our name appears on the nice list, we get in. If our name appears on the naughty list, we don't. And so the way we try to solve the problem is, listen, I'm going to try to control death and then I'm just going to, I'm going to be good while I'm here. I'm going to be the best I can possibly be while I'm here. But there's two problems with that. And, and I wish we had more time to spend on this, but here's the two big problems with that thinking. The problem is, is that there's no clear standard. If every one of us was just going to say, listen, we'll just go out and do good. We'll just go out and do good. If we took two of us and put us in a room and said, all right, agree on what's good and what's bad, you would never come out. 
We couldn't find two people to get into a room and agree 100% of the time what is good and what is bad, what is morally acceptable and what is not acceptable. And so when we're just running around trying to do good and to be true to ourselves, there's no clear standard. And a lot of us would say, well, listen, as long as I'm true to myself and my standard, then, then everything's going to be fine. And I would encourage you next time you get pulled over for speeding to just roll down your window and just say, I was being true to myself. This is how fast I go. There has to be a standard. If we're going to be evaluated on being good or being bad, there has to be a clear standard. And for many of us in this room, we would say, well, there is a clear standard. God has given us a clear standard. God has given us a clear standard, and it's in this book right here. And God has given us a very clear standard. The only problem with the do-good philosophy and this standard is if we're going to say all you have to do is be good and this is the standard, this book is very clear that none of us can do good enough to make this standard. That if we think in our minds that we're only going to be judged on whether we're good or not good and so we just live up to this standard and do what's good in this book and avoid what's bad in this book, this book makes it very clear that none of us can do that that none of us are good enough. In fact, Romans 3.23, maybe you've heard it before, Paul writes, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning all of us have tried to keep this and all of us failed. And so our solution of looking at this problem of death and looking at this problem of judgment and just saying, you know what we'll do? We'll just control it as much as we can, celebrate life, Celebrate life, ignore the reality, uh, control it as much as we can, uh, segregate so we don't have to look at it, and, and, do, and then we'll just be good people. And if we, if we control it as much as we can, and we put all our resources and time and money and energy into controlling the reality, and we're just good people, in the end, it's going to work out fine for us. But the reality is it doesn't solve the problem that faces us of death and judgment, because we can't control it, and we can never be good enough. So what do we do? What's the remedy? When Jesus was on this earth, he had some friends, a family that he was very close to. And maybe you've heard their names. If you've, if you've read any of the gospels, Mary and Martha were sisters and they had a brother named Lazarus. And they were very close uh, to Jesus, close friends. And at one point, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they lived in Bethany. They're just right outside of one another, very close. And Jesus was in Jerusalem, and a group threatened to stone him and kill him. So Jesus said to his disciples, we're going to leave for a little while. And they went on the other side of the Jordan, the Bible says, and they left town for a while. While they were gone, Lazarus fell sick in Bethany and died. And so they tried to get mess a message out to Jesus and, and Jesus was checking his Twitter feed or something and, and he said, you know, Lazarus has died. I just got word that Lazarus has died. So he said to his disciples, we're going to go back. And his disciples said, you know, they want to kill you there. And he said, we're going to go back anyway. Lazarus has died. We're going to go. And so they go back to Bethany. And by the time Jesus gets there, Mary and Martha and their family and friends, they are weeping they're in agony, just like we would be, right? If our brother died, he was too young, he got sick and died, and, and Jesus didn't do anything about it, just like we would be there in pain, they're suffering, they're mourning the loss of their brother. And Martha comes running out to Jesus, 
And she says, Jesus, if only you were here, you could have saved his life. If only you had been here, you could have saved his life. If only Jesus, Dr. J. Frederick Jesus, you could have saved him if you were here to make it right. And Jesus looked at Martha and said, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha, in the midst of her suffering, had this very spiritual moment. She said, hallelujah, I know, Jesus. He's going to rise again on the last day. When we all get to heaven, he's going to rise again, and we'll see him then. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Listen, Martha, look at me. Look at me. Don't you understand, Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, no, no, listen, listen. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though they die, they live. And what Jesus is saying to Martha in that moment is, you know this problem that you can do nothing about? about death and about the judgment that follows. You know this problem that, that no matter how much energy and effort you try to put in it, I know you took great care of your brother and he died anyway. That problem that you cannot find a solution to, that problem that plagues your society and your world and your own very life, that problem of dying and then being judged for how you live, I am the solution to that problem. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you put your trust in me, no matter what happens on this earth, I promise you, you will live. Because the reality is, you're going to die, and I'm going to die. And in the end, there's really nothing we can do about it. No matter how much time and energy and effort, no matter how many great people, smart people work on it, it's going to happen. But knowing this, knowing the reality that you're going to die and I'm going to die, God did something about it. Where we could do nothing, God did something. And he sent his son to live on this earth and to die on the cross for our sins, and to do what we could never do, to live a perfect life, to live up to the standard that's in this book, to do everything that we couldn't do ourselves. And so when we put our trust in him, we're not putting our trust in our own ability to do good. We're putting our trust in our Savior's ability to live the life that we can't live. We're putting our trust in his death on the cross, that he took the place where we should have been, that he took the punishment for all the wrong things that we've done, that he provides the remedy, that he provides the solution to the one problem we have no answer to. After Jesus looks at Martha and he says, uh, I'm the resurrection and the life, he asks her the one question that when it comes to our own salvation, when it comes to our own ability to have Jesus be the remedy, for us when it comes to death and judgment. He asks her the only question that matters. He looks at Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And then he looks at Martha and he says, Martha, do 
you believe this? Martha, that's all that matters. Do you believe this? Don't, don't look at the crowds. Don't look at the weeping crowds. Don't, don't think about your brother in the tomb. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And Martha in that moment gives the right answer. She says, yes, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming to the world. Jesus, I believe that you're the remedy to this problem. And so Jesus walks over to Lazarus' tomb. And the Bible says he tells them to roll away the stone. And, and, and the people argue with him. They said, it's going to smell in there. And Jesus said, just roll away the stone. And they roll away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, the Bible says, gets up and walked out of the tomb. Now the question is, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Why did he bring him back to life in that moment? He didn't do it because Lazarus needed another 20 years on this earth. He didn't do it so Lazarus could watch his kids graduate college. He didn't do it so that Lazarus could start the business that he was always talking about. And he didn't do it so that Lazarus would live on this earth for eternity. You can't go visit Lazarus. I can't go visit Lazarus. The guy still died after he was raised from the dead. So why would Jesus even bring him back? Why bring him out of there? How is he different from J. Frederick healing children with leukemia? How is this different than that? Jesus did it for one reason. And he said, told his disciples why he was doing it. And he told God why he was doing it. And he said in verse 15, when he was talking to his disciples, he says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And right before he rolled out, uh, opened the tomb, he was talking to his father in heaven. And he said this, he said, I'm saying this on account of the people standing around God, that they may believe. And the reason he did it isn't to give Lazarus a few more years on this earth. The reason that he did it was so that the people standing around and his disciples and us sitting here today would know for sure that the only solution to the reality of death and judgment is found in Jesus Christ alone. That the only person who has power over death and power over that judgment is the person of Jesus Christ. And the only thing that matters when push come to shove is not how we were able to control our death and how we were able to live out our years on this earth and how we were able to be good people. The only thing that matters in the end is do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. You know, God has done something about it. Where we can do nothing, God has done something. And he has provided a remedy. And in the next few weeks, you're going to see mangers and you're going to see babies in those stalls and you're going to see all sorts of decorations. And everything that you see, I don't care whether the people that put them up think this way or not, everything that we see over the next few weeks is a reminder that our God, when we were faced with this problem, that we turned against God and that we sinned. And so death is the result when we were faced with this problem, that we have no solution to, that we have no fix for, that we have no remedy. And based on our own actions, we would lose in the judgment. Where that reality existed, everything that we see over the next few weeks is a reminder that where we couldn't provide a solution, God provided a remedy through Jesus Christ, who came and did what we couldn't do and lived a perfect life on this earth. 
and took our punishment on the cross and proved once and for all his power over death by raising from the dead. And the only thing that matters at the end of the day, the most important question we need to answer in our own hearts is do we believe it? So I'd invite you, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes and answer that question for yourself. Do you believe that it's true? That Jesus is the one who provides the remedy for death and judgment? That in him is the solution for this problem that we can do nothing about? And maybe today for the very first time you would say, yes, I believe that. I want my answer to be the same as Martha. I'm sick of being afraid of death and I'm sick of just trying to be this good person hoping that I get in. Because you see, one of the big problems with the do-good philosophy is that we never know when we've made it. We've all done bad things that we're not proud of. And we don't know how many good things we have to do to even it out. Is it one good thing for every one bad thing? Is it three good things for every bad thing? Is it five good things for every bad thing? We have no idea when we even out the score. But in Christ, we don't have to worry about it. He promises us life. And when God, when we accept Christ and God looks at our actions, he doesn't see us, he sees his son. So the question we have to answer this morning is, do we believe it? And maybe you've affirmed this in your heart before, but you just want to say one more time to God, God, thank you. Thank you for providing a solution where I could never provide a solution myself. God, thank you for the grace and mercy on the cross. Thank you for the love that was shown. Thank you for the solution you provided that I could not provide. And maybe this morning for the first time, you want to say like Martha did, yes, I believe that you're the Christ the son of God who is coming into this world. And I'd invite you in these next few moments just to talk to God in your own heart. Just say, God, I believe. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And I'm sorry for all the things that I've done against you. And today, I want you to take control of my life. And if you'll do that, if you'll like Martha say it, to Jesus Christ. Today you begin a process, a process of becoming more and more like him, a process of learning to live in him, a process of learning to love like him. But you can be assured today that that problem that's coming is taken care of in Christ alone. And so God, we give you glory. We give you thanksgiving and we give you praise. Because where we could not provide a solution, you have provided a remedy in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace and the mercy from the cross that covers all of our sin and shame. And we give you thanks for it. And we give you glory for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.